Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's holiday time, and there are a bunch of things that probably shouldn't come up when you get together with family this time of year, like new tattoos, old boyfriends and girlfriends, and politics. Inevitably, though, no matter how much you want to avoid arguing with your Uncle Jeff when it seems like he's camped out in front of the living room TV, politics usually come up. So it's a good idea to be prepared. Rob Willer studies how we argue with other people. And why, when we're sitting around the table digesting like 3,000 calories, we're generally awful at convincing anyone of anything. In fact, Willer offered test subjects cash to convince other people to change their beliefs didn't work. But his research also suggests that some argument winning may be possible this season if you've got the right approach. Rob Willer is a professor of sociology at Stanford. Rob, welcome. Thanks for having me. It must be kind of crazy to be researching political arguments at a time when it feels to most people like the country is totally divided in a way that you cannot bridge it. Is it that division that uh, inspired you to research this? Yes, absolutely. I think that the ever-widening partisan gulf in America has been cause for dismay for citizens uh, and academics alike. And I think a good number of academics such as myself have dove in on this problem and tried to figure out, like, what are some rhetorical, political, strategic solutions that we might be able to do work on that might might offer some way out? How real do you think that golf is? Is a lot of it in our heads? So a lot of it is in our heads. A lot of it is a perception that's been played up in the mass media, that gets talked about a lot in social media, that we work up in excess of its reality. But one thing that political scientists tell us is, you know, after spending a lot of the 90s telling us, no, no, you know, this partisan gulf is not what it's reputed to be. Beginning in the 2000s, political scientists have really come around and said, you know what, it's it's not just congressional elites that are further apart than they used to be. It is also the American public. And when I think about research that illustrates this best. Uh, One thing that occurs to me is this recent research showing that uh, over 40% of Americans say that they would not want their child to marry someone of the opposite political uh, affiliation Hmm. as their own. And that's, that's a shocking, shocking statistic. Well, and it makes me think, too, of, you know, people saying, what's wrong with Congress? And like, why can't they get it together? But to some degree, as you're saying... Congress is the people we elect to Congress. Yeah, that's right. Congress is uh, responding to local electoral incentives in in part of their partisanship. Uh, you know, part of it is Congress people behaving badly, but part of it is them responding to us, and they're accurately looking down at congressional districts that have that aren't just you know more homogenous with respect to their political affiliation, but also have more animosity towards the other political party. 
So pick a topic then that seems kind of irreconcilable, at least as most people would see it, but you think might not be. And then we can talk about, all right, how do you bridge that divide? Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent question. And is exactly the question we approached in this research. So we tried to go through and pick out some of the most divided political issues in the United States and see, is there a way that we could rework these positions to be more attractive to the other side, uh, the side that currently opposes them. So same-sex marriage would be one of the hot-button issues of the last 10 to 15 years in American politics, deeply politically divided issue, although one we have seen some significant public opinion change on. And what we tried to do in our research was see, is there a way to repackage same-sex marriage in a way that would be more attractive to conservatives? And so what we did was we made a novel same-sex marriage argument. We reframed same-sex marriage to be consistent with the more conservative value of patriotism and group loyalty. And what we found was that when you make this same-sex marriage argument in terms of patriotism, that conservatives are much more supportive or were significantly more supportive of same-sex marriage. And so you might be wondering, what does what that message even even sound like? Right, exactly. It's patriotic to be in a same-sex marriage. Like where, yeah, how do you, how do you frame that? No, it's not, it's not obvious. And sometimes you can't do this. But anyway, but what we did in this case is we made an argument that gay Americans are proud, patriotic Americans. They contribute to the economy. They contribute to the military. And they deserve the same rights that are extended to all Americans. So it was a real American. America, America, mm-hmm. America sort of message. And and this resonated with conservatives, uh, certainly more so than the typical equality and fairness-based argument that we also tested, which didn't move anyone. And our read on that is, one, equality and fairness are values that are endorsed more by liberals than conservatives, whereas patriotism is a more conservative value. So this that new message was in a sort of moral grammar that conservatives, that resonated with conservatives. But second, like, the fairness equality message has, to a certain extent, convinced the people it's going to convince. You know, everybody's heard that message, and the people that are moved by it at this point in time have been moved. And so if you're going to try to move the last 40 percent, you know, you're going to need a different message probably. Well, one of the things also that seems to come out of your research is that people use the language that they speak in. So if somebody's liberal, the language they use to convince somebody that they're right also has as part of it the beliefs they already have, right? So it's it's really hard to convince somebody who speaks a kind of different language, even if it's a different moral language, not a different actual language. It's not like they speak German or something, because they're right. they're speaking um, in ways that would convince them as a liberal, not in ways that would convince maybe the kind of person that they know none of, conservatives. Yeah, that's exactly right. There may be nothing or few things psychologically more difficult than to set aside your most deeply founded values, your ethical commitments, your fundamental sense of what's right and wrong to try to think of a novel argument that connects to somebody with just very different values from you, connects to their values. That's just really difficult. It's like setting aside your own mother tongue to speak in another one that you just don't know. Okay, so you talked about gay marriage and convincing conservatives of something. Yeah. All right, convince a liberal of something that they would not be inclined to support. Right. So we wanted to show that this phenomenon was robust to whether it's conservatives talking to liberals or liberals talking to conservatives. And so one of the studies that we did to test whether this would work the other direction was we 
re-articulated a conservative political position. One of the ones we tested was high levels of military spending. We re-articulated that in terms of liberal values of equality and fairness and and showing care and concern to disadvantaged peoples. So mm. how did we do that? What we did was we made this argument that said that the military is an institution that offers opportunities to the poor and minorities, allows them to achieve on a more level playing field than most other social institutions offer, and in this way can give people social opportunities, opportunities to advance in the socioeconomic hierarchy in America. And we found that this sort of equality, fairness-based argument for military spending was was uh, convincing to liberals. Do you find that moral values can shift over time? Yeah, there is definitely some evidence that moral values can shift over time. So, for example, concern for equality in the United States has increased for liberals and conservatives alike over the course of the 20th and the 21st centuries. You know, if we if we went back to the late 19th century, the equality issues at debate were, you know, should, you know, should we extend basic political rights to to minorities in the United States and and extending enfranchisement to women was, you know, only beginning to to bubble up as a as a real legal possibility, political possibility. And you would think of now about where we're at on equal rights. Like everybody would would acknowledge or just about everybody in America acknowledges that we should all have the same basic legal rights with same-sex marriage maybe being one of those last issues to be right. pulled through that gate. But, you know, there is still a distribution of concern about equality, but it's just been ratcheted up at such a higher level than it was 100 years ago. Right. And as you say, that issue of same-sex marriage, it, it, it's the kind of thing where pollsters have marveled at how quickly uh, the public has shifted on something that I think a lot of people would think is a moral issue, no matter where you come down on it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, same-sex marriage is just a fascinating example of rapid public opinion change, the most rapid of my lifetime. And I think that it's an issue that was sort of wired to tip quickly as gay Americans got a sense that there was greater tolerance in their local communities that became possible for them to come out comfortably. uh, And this meant that many moderate and conservative Americans that were reluctant to support same-sex marriage suddenly found that they had people in their family or their close social network or their workplace that they cared about that uh, they didn't know were gay that were gay. And this, I think, had harnessed, you know, human empathy in support of this issue. And that's part of why it, it shifted so fast. But, you know, it's not done yet. What, as you've done your uh, studies, what has surprised you that you didn't maybe think you were going to find about the way people behave and the way people make arguments and respond to arguments? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I think we were surprised that when we gave people a cash incentive to make compelling arguments to people of a different political persuasion from their own, that they weren't better at it. We thought that they would at least sort of set aside their own moral commitments to make maybe not moral arguments that might be persuasive to the other party or the other ideology, but at least like evidence, fact-based arguments, you know. And instead what we found was, you know, people just sort of kept on making the moral argument that they would have made otherwise, even if they weren't told to be specifically targeting, you know, people of a different political persuasion. And that surprised me. And and it made me think that 
one, like we just lack an understanding of our, you know, the other party's political or moral commitments. But two, we also maybe part of what we're doing when we engage in political speech is moral self-expression more than persuasion. And that's going to make it hard to form political coalitions from the ground up if uh, when we go to articulate the reasons for our position, we're thinking of expressing our own reasons uh, rather than helping other people see it. So finally, um, as we head into the last few days of the year, even into the new year, do you suggest trying to broach these dicey topics um, with your family? Is that something that you think people should be doing? I, I think people should totally be having these discussions. I actually think the ways in which our families uh, provide cross-cutting social networks across party lines is, you know, one of the ways out of our current partisan dilemma is that, you know, we do come into regular contact with people we love who have different moral and political commitments from from our own. And, and you know, I think that this is one technique amongst many to to bridge that gap, to get out of our own political silo and into somebody else's and to be most persuasive in that space, you know, really try to think creatively about how does your political position connect to the cherished values of your family member. And you might be surprised by not just how persuasive that is to them, but also how you come to better understand uh, their values and their political commitments. Rob Willer is a professor of sociology at Stanford. Rob, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. dip into history to look at something that might have been under your Christmas tree a generation ago. In the early years of the 20th century, a pharmacist named Edwin Mayer was working at a drugstore, and he was getting better and better at one of the store's side businesses, developing photos. So these were the early days for photography, and Mayer was drawn to it, much more than he was to counting out pills and pouring tonics. So he saved his money to buy part of a photo finishing business in Portland, Oregon. He started to play with photos. He turned them into postcards so that tourists could show the folks back home what a beautiful western mountain looked like or a soaring state capital. But it was in the 1930s that Mayer discovered an inventor who would change his life. William Gruber had been trained to build organs for churches and concert halls, and he had a few ideas about photography. He brought Mayer an invention that was not totally new, but was far more sophisticated than what was on the market. It claimed to transport the viewer, to make them feel like they were at Niagara Falls or at the Grand Canyon. Mayer and Gruber worked with color film, and by the 1939 World's Fair, their product was ready for the public. And fairgoers fell in love. Mayer and Gruber had created a pair of binoculars that, when you put them to your eyes, displayed colorful scenes of faraway places. So you clicked a lever on the side of the binoculars, and the scenes changed. It was called a Viewmaster. Pretty soon, the device was everywhere. Adults thought of them as inexpensive entertainment. Kids wanted ones that told stories. And the military bought 100,000 of them to help train the troops. Over the decades, Viewmasters have become less and less common in kids' toy chests. But don't count the Viewmaster out just yet. It turns out the precursor to virtual reality has now made the jump to virtual reality. The Viewmaster VR still transports you to another world, 
but it uses a smartphone instead of slides. Or if you're up for something a little more old school, they're still making those click-through photo reels. Today we're looking at realities that are often discussed secretly or that no one wants you diving into. One of those comes from a study by Professor Matthew Mayhew at Ohio State University. And what he wanted to figure out was this. Who are the best innovators in college? What characteristics make you shine? What should professors and employers be looking for if they want to reward innovative young people? His answer is probably not something that colleges want you to hear. It turns out kids with lower GPAs tend to value innovation more than their straight-A counterparts. Mayhew says it's made them look at what grades really mean. What are GPAs good for? GPAs are good for kind of assessing, you know, whether or not a student understands kind of the college system, whether the faculty sees that the student understands with that system. GPAs are actually important for understanding students' persistence patterns. So, you know, they, they do predict whether or not a student stays in college over four years and graduates from that college. And ultimately, graduation leads to better paying jobs. What we are starting to question, though, is what do GPAs not measure? What are we hoping students get out of their college experiences that GPAs are just missing? And one thing we as other folks have found about innovators is that they tend to be more intrinsically motivated than extrinsically motivated. So what are GPAs? Are GPAs just a way that faculty can say, hey, you know the recipe, you're in the system, good for you? Or is there another way that faculty can kind of say, all right, GPAs are just doing this, and that's important, but we need to start thinking about learning as a construct much bigger than grade point average? You know, one of the things that your research makes me think is that maybe there are just two different systems that you can prepare people for. So one is a system of being part of a company and following the rules, and that's important in college, but it's also important in later life. And then the other system is not paying attention to the rules, starting your own company, uh, you know, maybe doing something completely different that, that carries a lot of risk with it. And I wonder if in some ways the people getting the good GPAs are indeed being prepared, but just for a different system. I think you're right. In fact, the director of op, uh, head of people operations at Google um, has noted, and you know, this is a quote, GPAs are worthless as a criteria for hiring. So yes, I think it might be, GPAs might be indicative that graduates are able to follow recipes and do so well. But what we don't know is, is that important for folks who want to hire the best people? Or do you want to hire people not only who start their own companies, but maybe come into an existing companies and can get a lay of the land and respectfully and responsibly innovate within their own system? Um, you know, the, hey, hey, boss, this is something new. Why don't we approach it this way? Or why don't we think about this idea and how to roll it out? These are the kinds of things that I think that employers are really looking for um, as we head toward problem solving in the next few years. Do you worry that it's a lot to ask a college to prepare somebody to be in middle management at Bank of America and also prepare somebody uh, sitting right next to them to start an app or to start a green energy company? Because those are two very different paths. Well, they're two different paths, but the skill sets might be the same. 
right? So if you think about, you know, taking an idea and rolling it out through execution, don't you think that the people who were, in, were, were entrusting with the future of our society should know how to do that? I think so. I don't think it's a stretch to say, you know, we need to be able to teach all students the skills of taking an idea and rolling it out as part of the standard equipment that college students should graduate with. And I think also, yes, it's important that students who are going to be doctors someday know their chemistry. And we're able to assess that they know their chemistry through these different um, systems, whether it's GPA or test taking and, and all board exams and all those things. So I do think that especially given the dollar value on higher education, that we can expect a college and universities to do both. Well, and there's also a lot of talk that we're at an inflection point where it's not going to be enough anymore to just be a middle manager, uh, that everybody, even in a larger company, a larger group of people, they're going to have to be innovators in order just to stay where they are. I think that's right. And again, this if, if that's where we're moving toward, if we're able to teach, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds and even beyond, you know, the majority of college-going students aren't, don't fall into that category. If we're able to teach all college-goers, like as part of going to college, you've got to learn how to tap into your creative sensibilities, how to take an idea and roll it out, how to identify when there's a situation that calls for something different, how to know when something's not working, how to network or talk to the right people to problem-solve. I think these are going to become incredibly important skills as we move toward the you know, next few years. What has been the reaction to your study? Uh, what have you heard? <laughs> you know, it's been interesting. The GPA part really has caught fire with people. Um, for a lot of people who are in the innovation spaces, they're responding saying, yep, we knew it. We knew it. We knew there was something else going on. We know that college and universities are off. We understand the system's broken. It's not doing everything that it's supposed to be doing. So there's kind of an intuitive sensibility that innovators are starting to respond to with regard to this finding. I think that the higher education folks that I'm talking to, they're saying, you know what, again, this is not necessarily an indictment on GPA. GPAs are important, but we need to start rethinking where GPA's place is in regard to the total amount of learning we would we want from our students. And so it's been positive, I would say, all around. Um, but again, you know, for the folks who are looking for reasons to say that the system of higher education is broken, it's given them some fuel. Matthew Mayhew is an education professor at Ohio State. He's author of a study that found that students with low GPAs are often more excited about innovation than those with high GPAs. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. A while ago, we aired an interview with Eileen Pollack on why women often have a harder time rising to the top in science and math. I mean, I like to say as an analogy, if a man and a woman are on uh, treadmills next to each other in the gym and they think that the treadmills are at the same setting and they start going faster and faster and the woman finds herself huffing and puffing more and sweating more, what she doesn't know is that her treadmill is set at a slightly higher incline, right? Because she's facing this discouragement, there are ways in which it's been documented that there's gender bias, that both men and women discriminate against uh, women scientists. And we asked listeners who had stories about being a woman in STEM to write to us. One of the emails we got was from Maura Appleberry, who's now a junior majoring in mechanical engineering. She told us about a car ride that she took in high school, which changed her life. 
right before my junior year, I was driving through the northern fields of Indiana, and I saw all of the wind turbines, and I was getting really excited talking to my dad about solar energy, typical car conversation, and he said, you know, it's great that we're coming up with um, wind power and solar power and great ways to use water for energy, but there's really no battery technology that can compensate for the episodic nature of these energy sources. Appleberry says she became obsessed with battery technology after that. And then she read that professors at the University of Louisville in her hometown were working on making better batteries. So I contacted a couple of the professors and I read what they were doing and I just wouldn't go away. And eventually they figured out that I was serious and said, well, we'll show you our labs and set you up with a team of researchers. So you were just like emailing them or did you like show up at their offices? What'd you do? I set up a meeting and stayed there and talked about what I was interested in, what research I had read, what I wanted to incorporate into my idea of expanding battery technology. They showed me what equipment they had and we went from there. For the next couple of years, she spent her free time at a university lab working on battery technology. And then she presented all her work at a state science fair. The judges had taken a liking to my project. I had presented for them separately about five times. And they kept coming up to me, kept almost quizzing me about the research that I had done and expecting me to stumble or make some mistake. And it had gotten to the point where they were asking extremely specific questions about the processes of each reaction. Did you know how to answer them? Yes, I had done the reaction. Okay. <laughs> so then finally, right before final judging, a uh, judge came up to me and said, there's no way a girl like you did this research. And that's it. And he walked away. And I was numb. I didn't know how to answer. I mean... I felt like all of the work that I had put in, not just that day, but for two full years, had gone completely unvalidated because a man didn't justify what I had done. And I felt like if I were a male student, this wouldn't have happened to me. Um, And then I went to judging, and I didn't even place And the person who said that to you was one of the judges. Right. And initially, I thought to myself, well, was my outfit misinterpreted? Was there something about my rhetoric that they thought there's no way you could have done this research? But speaking, I'd presented every day leading up to this competition in front of my fellow graduate students, I guess. And they said what you're presenting is the true research and I didn't place it all and I went home and I talked to my mom on the drive home and um, she was saying well why didn't you say anything I'd never experienced that sort of in your face you're a woman you can't do this Um, and I didn't know how to handle it did you tell anybody else like did you get any sense of how other women at the science fair were being treated. You know what I mean? Did you have any sense, like, outside yourself, how things were unfolding? Well, this is the first time I've ever spoken about it. I talked to one of my teachers at my high school about it, and he said he was he I should write in, but I was so afraid. And so when you had this story where 
you made it sound like it was okay to have a struggle. I said, you know what? I, my story is what happened to me and it's okay that it happened to me and I shouldn't be scared that, that this is the reality. How do you like take that story with you now? Do you, I mean, I, I feel like there's two ways you could go. One is like, it can make you even more hyper aware that people are thinking you're female, you're totally not up to this stuff because you're still in sort of the mass science realm. Or does it make you more determined? Like what, how does it change your mindset? Because you can't unhear what you heard. Right. I think about it every day and I think it does both. I definitely hyperanalyze every comment made about me as a student or uh, as a researcher. I'm going back to the University of Louisville this summer, hopefully, to do research there. Um, And I take it in and think about it, but at the same time, it makes me want to prove myself even Mm -hmm. more, even though I don't think I should have to. But it makes me say, you know what, I am qualified. I'm just as qualified as my male opposites to do what I'm doing. And I think there are not as many opportunities for women because of societal pressures, maybe. And so it's odd to see a woman in in STEM. Right. But yeah, I, I definitely hyperanalyze. It makes me nervous. It makes me feel like sometimes my answer isn't right. Sometimes if, if a guy says, oh, this is the answer, I'll recheck my work even if I'm even if he's wrong and I'm right. But at the same time, it makes me say, you know what, put on your put on your riding boots, Mora, and <laughs> your <laughs> leggings and go to class <laughs> and work as hard as you can. Does that incident in your life, at least, feel isolated? Or does it feel like it's like, you know, the worst expression of other things you've seen? Do you know what I mean? Or like, have most people been really, really supportive? And it was mostly just that one guy, albeit somebody with a fair amount of power. but mm-hmm. It's funny you ask that question because thinking back on it, on my senior year, there are two moments that really stand out to me, my graduation and that incident. I think in the course of my life, I've had so much support from my family. I mean, when I was little, I played with Legos and puzzles, not Barbies. And it's not a diss on people who do. I mean, they're fun too, but I was given that opportunity. And then I went to a high school with a math, science, and technology major. And then I was was taken seriously when I went to the University of Louisville my junior year. So I think in that way, I've been presented with so many valuable opportunities. And this was one of the first direct slaps in the face. Um, And it's, looking back on it, it's sort of traumatic. And I still remember those words every day. Appleberry says that even now she notices how surprised people are in social settings when she mentions that she's a mechanical engineering major, though she does believe that little by little we're making progress. I still think that men define if our answers are right. Men define if our research is research. And so that starts in the classroom and expands into the professional world. But I think that with this generation, there is so much more of an acceptance that this is a problem, and that's the first step to changing. And I think that the only way we can change is if we think individually about how we are contributing to this problem. And that's a choice that we have to make as individuals and as an entire society.
you want to hear the segment about women in science that inspired Maura Appleberry to write to us, head to our website, innovationhub.org. By the way, she tells us that her younger sister is now attending a special STEM-focused high school. had to name a space pioneer, who would it be? It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Probably Neil Armstrong, maybe John Glenn, maybe Alan Shepard. But behind all the big names, there were a bunch of folks who made the space program what it was. Some of them were known as human computers. And before mechanical computers, they were the people who actually did the math. They were based out of the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. And what is not widely known about them, and very rarely discussed, is that they were women. Nathalia Holt has investigated their strange journey. She's the author of Rise of the Rocket Girls, the women who propelled us from missiles to the moon to Mars. Nathalia, thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get too deep into the story of these human computers, um, how did you stumble on their story? Well, I would never have learned their stories if it wasn't for my daughter. So in 2010, my husband and I were pregnant with our first child, and we were just having a really difficult time coming up with names. (laughs) He thought of Eleanor Francis, and I, I wasn't sure. And so I did what parents do these days. I Googled the name. I wanted to see who in history she might share a name with. And I was really surprised when the first name that popped up was a woman named Eleanor Frances Helene. And there was this beautiful picture of her, and it's taken in NASA at the 1960s, and she's accepting an award. And I was stunned by this picture because I hadn't even realized that women worked at NASA at that time, much less as scientists. So I knew I had to learn more. And what I found is that she wasn't alone. There's actually a large group of women who are all working at NASA during this time. So you start off looking for a baby name and like anybody, end up writing a book. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, yeah, that led you down this rabbit hole of of finding these women who worked at NASA. It ended up not being easy to find. But I stumbled across this group of women who are known as computers. Mm -hmm. And so these women started in the 1940s. And they had an immense role in early American rocketry and then ended up having these long careers at NASA. If you were trying to characterize what they did in helping to launch the space program, you know, as you said, these were early days. You know, obviously people were hoping that we would go into space, but it hadn't happened yet. How would you characterize what they actually did? So during those early days, They were essential to calculating rocket trajectories. They were looking at different type of propellants for rockets. And all of this weaponry for World War II that ended up actually not being great in terms of weapons, but ended up being really important in terms of space exploration. So these early missiles didn't have much use during World War II, but ended up powering the first American satellite. And they were They were why we know that the first American satellite was a success because of their trajectories. You know, I think people would be really surprised that there were uh, women who were so crucial, as you say, to, you know, figuring out how rockets worked, figuring out how they could work better. We don't think 
of certainly the 50s as a time when uh, women were not only in the workforce in large numbers, but in these kinds of sort of math-heavy, science-heavy jobs, did they fall into it? Were women specifically recruited to be, like, you know, quote-unquote human computers? So what happened is, is in 1942, a woman named Macy Roberts was made supervisor of the computers at JPL. It was a small group then. And she decided that when she was hiring people, she only wanted to hire women. And there were many men that applied, but she felt that she wanted to create this very cohesive group of women that would all work well together. And she also worried that if she brought in men, they might not really be able to listen to a woman as their boss. And there was no pushback at at the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA, you know, when a woman supervisor said, I'm going to hire all women. It was such a tight-knit group. You know, you have to realize these are these are people that work together, but they also spent so much of their time together. Mm-hmm. They had all these social gatherings together. They had these very ridiculous beauty contests with many of the women that worked there. I, so I have to say, of... one of my favorite pictures from your book is the crowning of Miss Guided Missile, 1955. <laughs> you know, you think of like Miss Mississippi, Miss Minnesota, but Miss Guided Missile, I didn't know that was like a thing you could be. <laughs> it seems so ridiculous and arcane by today's standards. But in a way, these beauty contests were important to the lab because it brought the group together and it, it just forced them to become even closer colleagues. And they didn't end up really losing respect, even though they were part of these beauty contests. In fact, many of their male colleagues ended up including them in publications, and that was very uncommon to do that. And that really helped their careers. Well, what were some of the projects that they were working on um, in those early days that even at the time seemed crazy? Well, what I love is in the very early days, so this is in the 1940s, rocket science was considered a fringe science. People would never want to say that they were a rocket scientist. In fact, there's even a very famous engineer who worked at MIT. His name is Vannevar Bush, and he said, I don't understand how a serious scientist can ever work on rockets. And this this was really the feeling. And, And there was this sense in the scientific community that you would never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere in a rocket, that that was impossible. And the limit at that time was as high as a balloon could go. And so everything that they were doing with rockets that was sort of all under this guise of World War II weaponry was really about being able to enter space. And it it was um, very audacious at the time. Do you think there were doubts um, in Pasadena, you know, with the the folks at NASA and at, at the Jet Propulsion Lab, Uh, that what they were doing was maybe crazy, that it wouldn't actually work? Absolutely. This, from the very beginning, this was the feeling, that these were crazy people. In fact, the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory were considered so crazy that they were basically banned off campus, and they had to find this remote canyon in order to do their experiments. And this is the basis of the laboratory. This is where the laboratory was built because they had blown off a side of the building at Caltech. (laughs) Which is never a good way to, you know, ingratiate yourself. (laughs) Yes, and the funny part is that really only a few of them were students. Most of them were just people that wanted to fire off rockets, but they were still allowed to do their experiments on campus. How, if if you had so many women um, working in this early group of kind of space pioneers... 
I wonder how in the 40s and 50s they did balancing their work with having a family and what the families thought about this. I mean, that there must have been some degree of like, I don't I don't see other moms doing this. Absolutely, because it was very unusual. In 1960, only 25% of mothers worked outside the home. And for these women, it wasn't just a nine-to-five job. They had to come in at all kinds of crazy hours. When there was a launch, they were there all night. Mm -hmm. And during crunch times, they would have to spend days in the laboratory working. But I feel like a, a big reason why this worked is because of a woman named Helen Ling. And so she became supervisor after Macy Roberts, and she decided to continue this idea of only hiring women. And after someone had a baby, she would call them and ask, hey, would you like to come back? And she was able to bring so many women back at a time when it wasn't common to do so. And she just created this culture of acceptance for working mothers at JPL. And it's really because of her that you have so many women that are still working in that lab today. You know, that must have been shocking at the time, because in some ways, uh, in many workplaces, it was expected that when you got pregnant, like you were you were done. Um, not just necessarily that you would be fired, although maybe, um, but that also you wouldn't want to come back. I mean, you'd have something to do, and uh, and that would be the thing that that was your focus. Yes, and there's some very sad stories about this in the book because even though the women did work up until many cases up in nine months pregnant, they would work. Um, But there's a few cases where if they told the administration they were pregnant, they would immediately lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. And one very sad story of this is Barbara Paulson. She worked for 45 years at JPL, and she had a very important position while she was pregnant with her first child. And so she applied for a better parking spot, thinking that it would be nice not to have to walk up the hill every day to her building. And as soon as the administration saw the reason why she wanted this parking spot, because she was pregnant, they fired her that day. They said it was an insurance liability and she couldn't work there. And this was, you can imagine, so distressing to feel like you're such an important part of the lab and you just have to leave right away. And, of course, at that time, there's no maternity leave. So there's really, it's, you know, there's no guarantee that you'll ever be able to come back. Let's talk about uh, one mission that they worked on a lot, uh, Voyager. Talk about the importance of it and uh, the role that these rocket girls played. So Voyager, such an exciting mission. It started off being called the Grand Tour, and it was actually canceled by NASA. They decided that it would just be too expensive to try to explore the entire solar system. And so what they were going to do instead is just have a shortened mission that would only go to Jupiter and to Saturn. And to, to get around this, a small group of people decided to come in one weekend and design a trajectory that would still allow the mission to explore the solar system. And so this was a group... So of, this is like a secret detour this is to secret. actually... They think they're going to Jupiter, but they're actually exploring <laughs> the rest of the solar system. Exactly. And they, they wouldn't tell anyone at NASA about this because they really had to keep it under wraps. And so one of the women in this group was Sylvia Miller, who started out being hired as a computer and ended up having an incredible career as an engineer in the lab. And so they designed this trajectory that would allow them to use the gravity of each planet to kind of go as a slingshot and be able to work their way around the solar system. And this was kind of a on-the-cheap way to be able to do this <laughs> massive exploration. 
And they didn't tell anyone that this was the plan until after the, the spacecraft had already gone around Jupiter and was headed towards Saturn. So it was all a, a big secret, um, but such an amazing exploration. And some of my favorite stories in the book are when the women see the first images from the flybys of these planets, because I just can't imagine what it must have been like to see Jupiter with this big, angry red dot, this huge storm that's as big as three Earths, and to be able to see Saturn's rings so close, it just must have been an incredible time to be working in the lab. And when did Voyager launch? 1977, May. Was there a point at which this really tight-knit group wound down? Or did, you know, you said there were some people who had who had decades-long careers. Um, so what happened as time went on in NASA? Did, did NASA continue to be really accepting of women? Give me a sense of, of these rocket girls and, and what happened over time. Well, they were a very powerful, tight-knit group of women, and they didn't leave. They And, you know, at other NASA centers, what you see is that the people that were hired as computers were often let go once IBMs came in. And this didn't happen at JPL. Instead, they became the first computer programmers, and they eventually became given the title of engineers at the lab. And because of this, they were able to hire more women. Hmm. And what Helen Ling did, so she had a very long career at JPL as supervisor, and so she would specifically seek out women who didn't have engineering degrees, but who had degrees in mathematics and computer science. She would bring them in and then encourage them to go to night school. And by doing this, she just built this huge group of women computers at the lab. Do you think NASA um, still recognizes the legacy of these women? Is it is it as prominent as it should be? This was very sad for me because when I found this group of women, I, I was very saddened by how little recognition they've gotten. So in 2008... NASA held this big gala in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Explorer 1. And this was a big deal. They had many people come to this. But they didn't invite the women that worked on Explorer 1, not even the women that had been there in mission control that night. Why not? They have, they've just been forgotten. Their, their stories have, have sadly just gone by the wayside. And so much of, of what we know about them, even though they worked there for decades... Um, was 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 never recognized, was never really written down, or, or in many cases never even told before this book. So I'm I feel very fortunate to be able to have heard their stories, and I'm hopeful that that now they'll finally get the recognition that they deserve. That's interesting that they weren't invited to the gala. I mean, do you, do you take that as well? You know, they were, were relying on people's memories of who was helpful, and for some reason, a whole group of people just wasn't remembered that well by the other people? I, I think it's unfortunate that it's our women scientists that are often forgotten in history. There are so many cases of this, of, of women that have been critical to research, that have had amazing discoveries, and who haven't been recognized. And so I think it's important. We find their stories and we recognize their contributions. Nathalia Hold has written about the rise of the Rocket Girls, the women who propelled us from missiles to the moon to Mars. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Touchdown brings me around and get to find my papa, my
And in case you're curious, we will have a picture on our Facebook page of Misguided Missile 1955, who was crowned at the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugarts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.